Have you ever heard of anyone or know anyone who's joked about how when they die, they'd rather go to hell because that's where the party will be? You heard somebody say stuff like that? Sometimes I think that's probably because Christians have allowed them to imagine a heaven where everyone stands around in white dresses holding hands and singing kumbaya. They haven't been told about the beauty and the power of the kingdom of God. We're praying that that kingdom, that glorious, beautiful, and powerful kingdom would would come down. That's what we're praying in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to read the whole Lord's Prayer as we've been doing. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, where Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If there's anything lacking in our understanding of the gospel and the way that we present the gospel to people, it's this. The centrality of the kingdom of God. And, and some, some people might get excited and say, well, Christ is central. Christ is what's central to the message of the gospel. And I'd say, he absolutely is. Yes, he is. This, this promised Messiah who would come to rule and to reign and to have dominion over every corner of the earth and establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed, he's absolutely central to the message of the gospel. No question. Christ is absolutely central to the message of the gospel, but we have to know who this Jesus is, right? And what it is that he came to do. What was the will of his father that he obeyed so perfectly? God's purpose, his intention, has always been to establish a kingdom here. When Jesus came, he didn't bring ideas, he brought power, right? He brought a kingdom. And that's going to be the main idea of the message this morning. Jesus didn't come to bring ideas. He came to bring a kingdom. And when we pray this petition in the Lord's Prayer, we're praying the very will of God. Thy kingdom come. So in order for us to to pray aright, we're, we're going to talk this morning a lot about the nature and quality of this kingdom we hear so much about in Scripture. When we talk about the kingdom of God, What we're really talking about is the reign of God, the law and rule of God. And when you leave that out of the gospel, you leave out the very theme that makes any of the gospel make sense. You can't begin to make sense of the Bible if you only focus on sinners and forgiveness of sin. Almost all of Jesus' ministry doesn't make any sense if all it was about is sinners and forgiveness of sin. If that were his main focus, he would have spent more time talking about that specifically, but he doesn't. He, He spends a lot of time proclaiming the kingdom of God. In fact, this Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying, the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus himself, He doesn't even really mention the gospel as we're probably used to hearing it, sort of the American gospel as we we know it or, or have maybe heard it or explained. 
Let's, let's do this. If there were a pop quiz this morning, there's not, don't worry, okay? If there were a pop quiz this morning and I asked you to write down on the back of your bulletin your answer to the question, what is the gospel? What, what would it say? I bet I'd probably get a lot of John 3.16s, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That'd get you about a 60% score. That's still failing. (laughs) Maybe you'd articulate it this way. The gospel is the good news that sinners like me and you were once separated from God because of sin. But Jesus came and took our punishment so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God if we confess our sin and believe in him. That'd get you about a D minus. Because those answers only hit certain aspects of the gospel. It's all true. All of it's true. But they only hit certain aspects of the gospel. That's not the gospel Jesus preached. That's... It's not the gospel that you see preached in the New Testament by the apostles. Jesus preached the gospel of a kingdom. His disciples were instructed to go out and to preach the kingdom of God had come. And that's what they did. They went about everywhere proclaiming this kingdom of God had come and people were saved. I could talk about the kingdom of God for like three hours this morning. I really could. It's it's an exciting subject, but what that does is it actually makes it harder for me to preach about it than, than easier, because you know, I've got to file it down to a point. I've got to be narrow here, and what we want to do as we're studying the Lord's Prayer, we want to understand the second petition. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We want to know what we mean when we, when we say that, when we pray that. We have to know what it is that we're praying for, and I think a lot of Christians are, are guilty of sort of over-spiritualizing this kingdom of God, and it shows in how we present the gospel to people. We know the word gospel means good news, don't we? Good news, it's the good news. But whatever gospel we're sharing often doesn't sound like good news. It sounds more like instruction on how to escape punishment. The American gospel we're used to hearing is only ever about you and your life and your sin and your salvation and your personal relationship with your God. Well, if that's it, who else is supposed to care? That gospel is uninteresting. Sounds good for you, and that's probably why when you share it, this has been my experience, okay? It's happened to me. You share, you share that with somebody, and you know, they kind of pat you on the head and say, oh, that's nice. How nice for you. I'm so glad you found something that works for you. The biblical gospel is so much more exciting, so much more meaningful. It includes all of human history and extends into eternity and encompasses all of creation. It's about an entire universe abducted and desperately longing to be found and set free. 
It's the good news of a coming kingdom, and in this kingdom, the groaning of creation brings about a a new creation where tears are wiped away, where pain is relieved. Imperfections are removed. The thorns are no more. Weapons are repurposed because war ceased. Peace abounds, harmony is restored, and finally, death itself dies. There's a celebration in this kingdom, a joy and a wonder. There's safety and abundance. So where is the mention of this when we share the good news? How come our gospel sounds different than the ones the the, the one that the apostles proclaimed. You know, they never mention anything really about personal salvation. Of course, we deduce that from Scripture, right? But what they do is they emphasize and, and, and they just keep proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, period. Lord. He's king. Their gospel, the biblical gospel, is grounded in power and rule and authority and conquering. The one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, as we said a moment ago, will take it all back and destroy the one who took it. That's the gospel. Not just repent and believe so you can go to heaven instead of hell when you die. Here's what I want to suggest this morning, y'all. If the story we're telling isn't the story God's telling, we're not telling the whole story. You know, we're off. Doesn't mean we're we're wrong in in what we're saying. It's just it's incomplete. We've left the good news out of the good news, and we shouldn't be surprised that no one's interested. So I'm going to take this time this morning to kind of help reorient us to the heart of the gospel because it is what we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's prayer: the kingdom of God. We're going to see if we can get our story straight. We're going to see if we can tell the story that God is telling, right? And this sermon only has one point. The Bible is a story, and the kingdom of God is its theme. When we come to the Bible, we've got to realize we're not coming to a theological textbook, just, you know, just some thick stack of loose-leaf collections of doctrines, right? It's a story. And if we start looking at parts of it in isolation from the context of this, this meta-narrative, this overarching story, we lose the forest for the trees. And a story, every story has parts, doesn't it? We know this. Stories have parts. It works like this. You know, there's, there's sort of a setting of the stage and an introduction of all the characters first. You know, it was, uh, it was a foggy morning in Maine, and Johnny was taking his usual path down the cobblestone road through the woods when he rounded a corner and bumped into Jill, and that's how Johnny met Jill, right? And then, when the stage is set, the characters are introduced. Uh, uh, The the, the storytellers begin to introduce this this inciting incident into the story, conflict within the characters. It wasn't wasn't long before uh, Johnny found out Jill was an axe murderer, I don't know, something, you know? But that inciting incident leads to rising action, 
It, it begins to build, and, and it builds up to a climax, the height of the action, the turning point of the conflict. Then after that, there's a falling action and a final resolution where the conflict is completely over. That's generally how stories work. Good ones, anyway. Yeah. A story with no characters and no conflict is boring. Stories with no resolution are unsatisfying. God doesn't tell boring, unsatisfying stories. He tells the best stories. You know how people uh, often will say, um, art imitates life? Heard this? You know, we're all just imitators of the God who made us. We're, we're creative because he's creative. We're imaginative because he's imaginative. And we are made in his image. And so we too, unlike all his other creatures, are imaginative beings and we possess this ability to create. He, he created everything out of nothing. And then we turn around and we create things out of all the stuff that he made. It's pretty cool. And the stories that we create are just trying to copy the story we're living in. Stories are told this way that I've just described because that's the story that God is telling. It's not, I mean, it's not the other way around, right? You know, the, uh, this, this, this way of the, these parts of story, this formula for storytelling, it's not an invention of man. It's an observation by man of the story that he's living in. This is the way great stories are told. You know, you think about the, the, the story that God is telling. In the garden, right, the stage was set, literally. The heavens and the earth and all that are in them were made. And then the first character we actually meet is God himself, the author of the story. Before anything was made, there was the maker. Before uh, there was a story, there was the storyteller, the word of God. The word was with God, and the word was God. And then we meet our, our main characters, right? Adam and Eve. And they're living in right relationship with God and, and with each other, living blissfully in paradise, but then, inciting incident, uh-oh. We meet a villain in the garden, the antagonist in the drama. And that's when we hit the part of the story arc, that, that inciting incident, we call the fall. Okay? Sin entered into the world. Everything comes undone. Something tragic happens. And so the suspense begins to build, the rising action. Effort is being made left and right to alleviate this, but the battle just rages on and on, and there's death and destruction. There's little glimmers of hope stuck here and there, right? But it always seems so far out of reach. It seems like all is lost, and you just want to give up. But you know, good stories don't end that way. There's, there's always hope that somehow, some way, there will be a hero to set things right, and all of that rising action leads to a climax. The turning point. The Redeemer comes. Our hero finally arrives on the scene. We knew he'd come. Right? And get this, it's the author of the story. It is the playwright himself. The word of God that was with God and was God before, uh, before all things was, was made flesh and dwelt with us. Isn't that what we're, we're meditating on this time of year? 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself in order to save his, his people from certain doom. There's a reason you like stories like that. You may have heard me say this before. There's reasons you like stories like that. There's, reasons you, 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 there's a reason you go and spend money to see that movie. There's a reason you read that book over and over and over and over and over again when all that changes is the time and the place and the costumes and the names of the characters. You read that book over and over and over again. You buy that story because you know that's the story you're living in. Our great hero sacrifices himself in order to save us. And at his death, it seemed as though the villain had won, didn't it? But our hero rose again from the dead, claimed his authority over all the earth, ascended into heaven and said, I'll be back. That's what's happened in the story so far. That brings us up to speed to now. So all we're waiting on now is the resolution, right? Which means we're, we're living in the falling action part of the story. Where the consequences of the climax, Jesus and the cross, are playing themselves out. The kingdom has come, it's having its intended effect, it will accomplish its ends, and then the king will return to be received by his people and feast with them on that joyous occasion. That's, that's how the story ends. That's where we are, the falling action. Now sometimes I think we imagine ourselves on the other side of the ark, don't we? Like we're waiting on the climax. We're not. We live on the other side of that ark where we have our hero already. The biggest battle has already been fought and won. We're celebrating a win rather than wondering if anyone will come and save us. The answer is yes, and he has. The rescuer has come. And because he did, we live in a time of celebration, a time of inviting people into the safety and the peace that the gospel offers and affords. A time where the curse that was put on the earth is being lifted gradually. The snow is beginning to melt. The sun is peering through the gray clouds and, and color is coming back into creation again. All of creation tells this story. Year after year, creation tells this story. Year after year, creation preaches to us the sermon of life after death. A summer of everything performing at its, at its peak growth and abundance, followed by a fall where things start to change, start to wither, followed by a winter of death and silence, followed by a spring of warmth and new life. Everything turns green again and leaves reappear on the trees. Flowers blossom and fruit appears and ripens. And that's where we are. The, the ripening. And when it's ripe for the picking, there will be no need for another cycle of seasons because death itself will cease to be. That's what we're waiting on. An endless summer when everything remains in bloom. But before then, death must die, and before death is defeated, all other enemies must be defeated. That's the part of this ripening and the falling action part of the story. That's what we're praying for when we pray thy kingdom come. That's what we're praying for when we pray thy kingdom come. That these consequences post-cross, post-resurrection and ascension 
continue to be carried out according to God's plan, according to the story that he's telling. That's where we are in this part of the story. There's things that have to happen as a result of the cross before this resolution we're waiting on comes, before the fullness of the kingdom is realized. I want you to turn with me, if you, if you have your Bible with you, um, and I hope you do, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look at a couple verses here. Um, we're going to look at verse 24 through 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 24. Then comes the end, Paul says, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it's not Jesus returns, there's a final resurrection, and then he starts ruling and reigning over the earth and conquering his enemies. That's not what it says. Christ is the king and is reigning now and must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And then, after every rule and authority and power against him has been defeated, the last enemy he destroys is death. The end. And it's an end where God dwells with his people, and they literally live happily ever after. In perfect relationship with each other and with the world that God made for them, and most importantly, with the God who made it. That's a really exciting ending to the story. You know, you think it's cool when um, an author you really like, if you have a favorite author, you know, you think it'd be cool if he like autographed a copy of his book for you, wouldn't you? This author wrote your name in his book and it ends with you living happily ever after with him. We need to know how the story ends if we're going to tell it right. It's kind of what I'm trying to say this morning. And we do know. God tells us. And we know there's a sequel, right, that we don't know all that much about. But God doesn't leave us hanging here with how this one is going. Endings are important. Okay? Unfinished stories are unnatural. And we all know uh, we're, we're very future-oriented beings, aren't we? Very future. We want to know what's next, and in fact, we live out our whole lives in light of uh, our projected future, moving towards some, some end. So here's the question this morning. What kind of future are you imagining? Hold on to that. Go home with that. Okay? Go home with that. Write that down if you need to. What kind of future are you imagining? It's an important question because the kind of future you're imagining shapes your attitudes and decisions in the present, doesn't it? You know, if somebody's planning on, on going to college to be some, you know, they want to be an astronaut, well, there's a lot of decisions they're going to have to make over the years moving in that direction if that's ever going to happen. The kind of future you're imagining shapes your attitudes and decisions in the present. Knowing where we're headed tells us how to live in the present. And if the end of the story that you're telling, y'all, 
ends with the end of your life when you go to be with Jesus in heaven, you're missing the, you're missing the point of the gospel. You're not telling the story God is telling. That's good news, and it's true. It's going to happen, right? But that's a piece of the story. God's story doesn't end with you dying and going to heaven. It doesn't end with everybody eventually dying and either going to heaven or hell. It doesn't end with an escape from physicality. It ends with cosmic renewal and the purification of the physical. Just like it did in, in, didn't we just read that in Genesis chapter 6? Didn't he do that once already? Right? Flooded the earth in order to cleanse it, to purify it, to renew it, to bring it back to life again. It ends with strength and victory and relief. So we pray, yes, Father, thy kingdom come. Do it. Do what we all know you have in mind. Finish telling your story. Help us to realize it's being done now before our eyes and help us to live as though we know where it all leads. Hasten it. Didn't we read that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer? That we're asking him to hasten his kingdom? That's what we're praying for. We look forward to it. We look forward to the restoration of the pictures that, that we saw. Before things got ugly there in Genesis 6, they sure looked good, didn't they? You know, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, you know, God's basically singing everything into existence, and we have the rivers of life and a, this tree of life. Those reappear by the end of Revelation 22. The heavenly city comes down to us, and God walks with his covenant partner, his, his bride, his church. He walks with his bride in the cool of the day, naked and unashamed because our shame has been done away with. Imagining your future this way gears you toward watchfulness and work in the present. It doesn't over-spiritualize things to the point that none of this really matters and all we need to worry about is waiting to be taken away into heaven. A biblical vision of the future challenges us to live out our lives within God's creation. Not to look forward to a day of escaping it, it motivates us to start families and raise children and to disciple them, to bring them to church with you every Sunday, to sit in the pews next to you and see how you worship and praise this almighty God that we worship. It motivates us to work hard and to make sacrifices in order to, to leave those children an inheritance, right? The Word instructs us to do that, to build a, a good and strong family name to settle into geographic areas with the intent of having an unmistakably Christian influence on it. It motivates us to build things that will last. Your forefathers did that. Your forefathers did that. The first settlers on this continent understood what it meant to pray, thy kingdom come. They imagined a future that looked like the gates of hell being battered and beaten down as a result of the king rising again and taking his throne. We pray, thy kingdom come with that future in mind. And that changes the way that we share the gospel. It changes the way that we tell the story of redemption. It begins with creation. The, the, the fall brings conflict 
Redemption is the climax, and the restoration is the resolution. So you see it moves through these stages, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the complete message of the gospel. That's the story God is telling. We don't talk about the kingdom like it's some far-off kingdom we'll retreat to one day. Instead, we sound like Jesus when we preach the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. This is good news. The kingdom is here and now and growing like a tiny mustard seed, Jesus tells us, doesn't he? Grows into a large, a large tree. You get this image of, of the, the fog is lifting, the snow is melting, the bad things are coming untrue. And how? Why? Because what went into the tomb under the curse of sin came out raised bodily to newness of life. We're not waiting for that to matter. It matters now. What we're waiting on is for it to matter to everyone. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. We've seen what it looks like, Father, and we want it all the more. Jesus, Jesus told us what it would look like, but he showed us too, didn't he? He showed us what it would look like. It wasn't just some spiritual idea. It was a physical reality. Remember I said at the beginning, Jesus didn't come to bring ideas. He came to bring power. He brought a kingdom. His miracles proclaimed the nature of the kingdom of God, and it was physical, wasn't it? Was it theory? Was it idea? Was it simply spiritual realities? Or what, did he bring physical realities down from heaven and, and begin to manipulate the world that he had made out of its slumber? The blind received sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The kingdom of God is not merely about the forgiveness of sins. It's about the removal of the corruption of sin from the world and restoring man and creation to the fullness of its intended purpose, the glory of God. Jesus brings all this kingdom talk, right? He brings all this kingdom talk and then he performs these kinds of miracles right where the bodily existence of man is being disrupted. You think about Jesus casting out demons. It wasn't just to prove he was God. It sure did do that, right? But it wasn't just to prove that he was God. It was evidence of his kingdom arriving and taking over. You know, that, that's not uh, hermeneutical acrobatics. Like Jesus says so in Luke chapter 11. In Luke's gospel chapter 11, he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is proof. Me casting out these demons, Jesus says, is proof of what I tell you, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. His miracles were a demonstration of what he intended to do, to exile darkness, to evict evil, to reverse the curse of the fall. Jesus establishes himself as the king, not just of heaven, not just reigning in the hearts of those who believe in him, but Lord of all, with power and authority to rip the suffocating cellophane of sin off of the world that he had made. 
we got to get our story straight. This one's more exciting. This is the message of the kingdom that Jesus brought. This is the message that he, he delegated to his disciples to take into all the earth until the coastlands wait for his law. We can't reduce the gospel to just forgiveness of sin and personal relationship with God and going to heaven one day. That's all included, okay? We're not diminishing that. But that's not the full story that God is telling. That might be the part that matters to me, personally, selfish little sinner me. That's the part I like the best because that's the part about me. But that's not the full story God is telling, and it's not the gospel Jesus preached. Blind people receiving their sight wasn't some metaphor for forgiveness of sin or the spiritual nature of this kingdom. It was evidence of the promised one coming, the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15, to come and lift the curse that sin brought on the earth. It was to indicate to people, he's here. Jesus' miracles, y'all, were battles against the consequences of the fall. The physical consequences of the fall. Didn't God say, didn't he say, you know, don't we all as parents say, uh, you know, if you do that, then I'll tell you what will happen if you do that. Well, God told him what would happen. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, die, die. That's how they emphasize things. They repeat it. In the day that you eat of it, you will die, die. Death is not natural to man. It's a result of sin. Jesus comes, brings people back to life. Our bodies aren't supposed to be, become frail and weak and sick and, and, and crippled. The eyes weren't made not to see, they were made to see. And so those born without sight were given sight. That's what he did. He came and he did battle against the consequences of the fall and people saw it. And they knew that this kingdom had come. He didn't just perform cool miracles to show that he was powerful. He used his power to heal, to cast out demons, and to raise the dead. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. If he only came to forgive sin, then none of that other stuff matters. It doesn't make sense. But if the gospel is the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's the story of a king eradicating sickness and death and overthrowing evil, taking it up by the root out of the good world that he had made. Not just in theory, actually, right? That's good news. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the kingdom we're praying would come when we pray, thy kingdom come. Is that the kind of kingdom that you're imagining when you pray that kingdom comes. This is the future you have in mind. I think a lot of Christians imagine themselves going to the kingdom when they pray that. They imagine themselves going to the kingdom rather than God bringing the kingdom here. I know a lot of Christians who believe heaven is the ultimate goal and their rightful home. But you will find a single verse in the Bible to support that. Scripture does confirm that to be absent in the body, Paul says, right? To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that. But Scripture also confirms that to be absent from the body is a great evil. That's not natural. It's not supposed to happen. That's why funerals are sad. Your soul being absent from your body is a result of the fall. It's not good. And it won't last. 
Our soul's existence in heaven is unnatural and temporary. Heaven is not the destination. It's a waiting room, right? And what you'll be waiting for when you're there is the final resurrection, being reunited with your body and glorified at the consummation of the kingdom on the earth. It helps to keep that in mind as we pray this petition. Last week I mentioned that these first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer have to do with God's goals and God's desires. We see thy, 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 don't we, before we see us, us, us. I think we'll be praying the thys in heaven, don't you? Because it won't be over yet. Until his name is hallowed in all the earth, until his kingdom has come in its fullness, until his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, we'll be praying along with whoever is left here for that to happen. Because our death is not the end of God's story. God's goal is the restoration of all things. Jesus didn't come to just take part in creation, right? As we think about his incarnation during this time of year, we, we think about him coming, becoming flesh, we know that he came to die for sinners and stuff, but it, it gets really easy for us to kind of focus a little bit too, too much on the, well, he came so that he knew what it would be like to live in my shoes. He became one of us so that he would know what it's like to be one of us. Well, it doesn't end there. Jesus didn't just come to take part in creation. He came to take over creation. That's good news. It's good news that our God is committed to the work of his hands and, and will not let go. He will not give any portion of it over to the enemy. That is good news. He is with and for his creation, redeeming it for himself. It's good news. It's a story God's telling. And I would suggest we get good at telling that story because Paul says it is the power of God for salvation. Repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Confess that Jesus is Lord, not your Lord. Lord, period. Lord of all. Wake up and smell the coffee. Wake up and see the truth. Let the lights come on for you. Recognize that Jesus is Lord of all. Turn away from your sin. Acknowledge him as Lord of all. Uh, disassociate yourself with his enemies and come under his care and protection. In this kingdom bursting with life. The gospel we have and share is an invitation into this kingdom. It, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a parachute that we're handing somebody. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's a wedding invitation. It's not the good news of our divorce from an evil world. It's the good news of an evil world overcome and restored. When we view the future this way, you think about it for a second. Doesn't it get a little easier? Just imagine with me for a second. When we view this future, the future this way, when we tell the story that God is telling, 
does it not then get a little bit easier to, to invite people into our lives, into our homes, around our tables, into our family at church? It starts to make sense and be a little less daunting, doesn't it? Because we're not welcoming people into the way out of something. We're, welcome, we're welcoming people into something. We're welcoming them into beauty, the reality of how things are. Love is a greater motivator than fear. I would sooner jump in front of a freight train to save Amanda, my wife, than I would if you held a gun to my head. Do it or else. Is the story we're telling the same as God, the, the story that God is telling? Because the story he's telling is, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? When we look at it from start to finish, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And you know, people can only receive it if, if God wills and the Holy Spirit moves, the way he's moved in Bill's life. People can only receive it if the Spirit moves, we know that. But let's imagine the kingdom for what it is. Pray for it to come and participate in its coming in the present by presenting it to others as, for being as beautiful as it is. We participate in its coming when we do things like we're about to do now with the Lord's Supper. We proclaim its com coming as we, as we partake of these elements, these physical elements bread and wine that testify that the king has come and proclaims his coming until he returns. That's what we do. And we who have been brought into this kingdom gather around tables and eat and drink, longing for the day that Jesus eats and drinks with us at the consummation when he is present with us. That said, the only ones invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb the future are those that the lamb was slain for, those who are invited by his sacrifice. And likewise, only those who have called him Lord and trusted in him, those for whom the lamb was slain, are invited at this table. So if you are a Christian, you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you are a member in good standing at a church. That means, you know, you you're not running here for refuge and avoiding uh, problems that you've caused somewhere else. If you're not harboring sin in your heart toward someone else in the body that needs to be confessed to God, repented of, and there's reconciliation that needs to happen there, right? That's not the case for you this morning. Whatever reason you have for not coming is no reason at all. Jesus says, come. This is for sinners. This table is for sinners. It's not for people that scored 100 this week. It's for people who know they need the body of this Savior King broken for them in order to have anything to do with them. It's for those who recognize that he had to pour out his own blood, the blood of the new covenant, in order to be invited into this and called the bride of Christ. Let's pray. I'll read the words of institution, 
And then Foster and some guys will have you come forward in large groups around this table and we'll partake together. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord God, you are so wise, holy, good, and Lord, as we've talked about today, creative and imaginative. You're telling a beautiful story that you're allowing us to be a part of. God, I pray that as we, your people, purchased by your blood, come to partake of these elements this morning, that we would know you are with us. You are with us in spirit. You you give us this food and this drink for our spiritual nourishment. So I pray, Lord, that you would now set apart these, these elements, these natural things for a supernatural, for an extraordinary purpose, that we would eat and drink and be filled and rejoice in our salvation and anticipate your kingdom and pray for it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.